0: You're listening to the weekly teaching podcast of Willamette Christian Church in Westland, Oregon. We hope that what you hear today inspires you to laugh, question, think, and grow. If you'd like to connect with us even further, hit us up online at willamette.cc or shoot us a direct message on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this week's episode. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good? Good. Okay, some of you are like kind of awake this morning. That's good, that's good. I am so excited to to wrap up this series that we've been in uh, last week and this week called Dream. And I hope you've figured out by now, it's a little bit of a nod to Martin Luther King Jr., right? We're celebrating um, his life and his legacy tomorrow. And so we wanted as a teaching team and as a church to just honor him a little bit this time of year. Now, if you're new with us, uh, there's probably a temptation to hear a sermon series like this with a nod to MLK and what he has done and gone, man, is, is that something, is justice and righteousness, which come from the same kind of root word, is that something this church really cares about or is this just a, a one-off thing? And I just want you to know that as a church, this really is a part of who we are. That because of who Jesus is and what he has done, that we want to go into the world and go, okay, how do we fight for other people on behalf of others? And so from time to time, we slow down and we focus on things. And sometimes, sometimes it's good to even do that on a yearly basis, because doing it in a rhythmic way is helpful. You, we do this all the time. We just celebrated Christmas, right? Every Christmas what do we do? We talk about baby Jesus, right? Like it's just going to happen. Like you've heard the Christmas message already. You know what's going to come this year at Christmas. So at Easter, you know that as a church, we're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And so that's just part of the rhythm because it's worth looking at. It's the new year. You've made resolutions. You begin to kind of evaluate what was in the past and what is forward. This is what markers do. You celebrate your birthday every year, I bet. Because we just do that. There's just things that we do to go, hey, there's a rhythm to things. And part of the reason we do that is it's helpful when those moments come around to pause and and to look back and to see where we have come from, to, to look in the present moment and go, okay, where are we right now? Like, how far have we come? but then also to dream and to think about a future and go, man, we've still got some stuff left to do. So how, in light of what is coming in the future, do we back up and begin to do things now to bring about the future that we know is promised to us because of the resurrection of Jesus? And so from time to time, it's important to slow down. And MLK weekend is a great time to do that. Oh, one of my favorite things about Dr. King is, and honestly, our culture kind of misses this around this weekend, is that he was not an activist first. You see, Dr. King was a preacher and a pastor first. What this meant is that as he tried to bring about civil change, this seismic shift about civil change that he was about, it came not from his ideology, but from his theology, Although Dr. King probably wouldn't have separated the two. Because for him, it was all together as one. Which is why on August 28th, 1963, he was standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And as he gave his speech, he began to preach.
1: Just listen to him. This is a faith that I go back to the South with. Yeah. With this faith And this will be the day, yeah. this will be the day when all of God's children yeah. will be able to sing with new meaning, my country tears of thee. Yeah. Sweet land of liberty, yeah. of thee I sing. Yeah. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. Yeah. From every mountainside, let freedom ring, yeah. and if America's. I mean, if that's not preaching. I don't know what is, right?
0: Is he looks and he goes, I'm dreaming of this thing in the future. That's theology. It echoes scripture. And you can go back to the Old Testament and look at the Hebrew people who were following after God. And as they're following after God there, they decide, you know what? We want to be like all the nations around us. We want a king to represent us. And God comes to them and says, hey, I am willing because I'm a gracious God to give you what you want at times, even though it may not be the best thing for you. And so he says, but I will give you a king, but know that this king is going to enslave you and he is going to tax you and he will eventually divide you. And God didn't want that for them because he goes, be united under me. You can look at the prophets in uh, later on in the Old Testament that came to Israel now that sure enough, it's a divided kingdom and the prophets are consistently coming to them and going, God is trying to call you as a people back to him to be unified under him and his banner because there's disunity and division so much that the kingdom had split apart. You can look at Jesus who in Matthew chapter 17 prayed for you and I and the church and that the world would know us by our love and how we are unified under his banner together and you can read Paul one of the greatest pastors and missionaries that wrote the majority of our New Testament who calls the church consistently and, con- and over and over again to be united under one God and one King of Jesus. You see, that's what Dr. King was preaching about. But unity is hard, isn't it? Unity is tough. And so, so maybe if you're a skeptic like me, you look at the church in some ways today and you go, man, we've missed out on that dream. I mean, I mean maybe it's just another data point to say, yeah, Jesus was maybe a cool guy in history. But, but if he's really who he says he is, the, the church doesn't so reflect that very much. I mean, look at how many denominational dividers we have. And and now as denominations are sort of splitting amongst themselves over things, there's other churches that are coming up that are like us, that are the non-denominational kind. They go, man, how do we throw that off? And then how do we do something new and something different? And now I don't even know how many denominations there are out there, not to mention the non-denominational movement that is out there, where we're all sort of independent. And so you could look at this and go, see, maybe it's not all that it's cracked up to be. And I think that critique in some ways would be right but it's incomplete. It just points to how hard unity is. It's not just institutions or corporations like the church, right? Think about your own family. Staying united in a marriage is tough. Have kids and all of a sudden they're going to start doing stuff and you and your spouse are going to disagree on how to handle that. Get married, and you're gonna see that all of a sudden your spouse does dishes different than you do, and there's gonna be World War III over how to do the dishes and how to fold towels. (laughs) Unity's hard. Have kids and let them start rebelling as they grow up and having a mind of their own, and all of a sudden they go off to college and they come back and they're like, Who are you, and what have you done with my child? Talk to your in laws. I hear those nervous chuckles. (laughs) Some of you are like, yeah, I married him and them. Right? We can just look at our own family units and the people immediately around us and go, unity is tough. And yet we don't give up on that. We keep fighting for that dream. We pursue it. But if we're going to pursue it as followers of Jesus, then we need a paradigm shift. And we need the Holy Spirit in our life to help us with this because relationships are hard. And so we have to begin to think a little bit differently. You see, as followers of Jesus, we should be united as one because that is a reflection of who God is and who we should be and the mission we are on. But that is a hard thing to do because we're people and we're in relationship with one another and we all have faults. Which is why there's a diagram that we use often at our church to talk about the relationships that we have with one another. And so it looks like this. And and if you've been around a little bit, you've probably seen it. You see, most of the culture around us, the the world that we live in, says, listen, if we're going to be in relationship, then we need to agree on things first. This is what's going to bring unity is agreement. And that could be agreement on sports or hobbies or backgrounds or politics or music or dress. It could be unity on all sorts of things. But hey, we've got to agree on these things. And then once we agree, now when we disagree, well, there's an agreement that's at the core of this. And so we can kind of work with each other, that understanding. And then once we get there, that's where we finally find acceptance. See, this is the way that the, the majority of people think about relationships. But the gospel comes along and it flips this on its head. We'll look at that in in, in a minute. But You see, that points to the fact of how difficult unity is and that we need the Holy Spirit in our life and the community of God's people around us in order to live our lives as one before God. It's hard. And yet it's a dream that I haven't given up on because I know that someday in the future, Christ will return and make that a full reality. And so I go, how do I begin to live that out now? Because in the future, it's not a dream, it is truth. So we're gonna look at the book of Ephesians this morning. The book of Ephesians will be in chapter four. You can feel free to to begin to find that on your device or Bible. If not, the the words will be up here on the screen as I'll be reading from it. We're going to kind of look at this church in Ephesians. Now, here's what you need to understand before we just dive in. Is the book of Ephesians was not written to one individual church. It was written to a region called Ephesus. And so it was a, a book that would have been written probably one letter written by a guy named Paul. And because um, publishers had not been invented yet, he just wrote one and then he'd send it to a church and he said, hey, make copies of this, plagiarize it, send it to a ton of people. You don't need to pay me for it. Just, just send it out to everybody. And so they, they sent it out to everybody in the region. And part of the reason he did that is Paul understood the disunity that was happening there in Ephesus. He'd heard reports of it coming back, and so he writes the letter while he is in prison. And which, just speaking of writing in prison, if you've never read Dr. King's letters from a Birmingham jail, you should read it tomorrow. It's even better than his I Have a Dream speech, in my opinion. And so in that same vein, Paul is writing from prison. But he's writing the book of Ephesians in this letter because he's challenging the people to be united as one. The entire first chapter He's laying uh, the groundwork in a treatise to go, hey, listen, there is the Jewish people who God came to first that were predestined before time to be God's people. But in that, the Jewish nation had not seen the gift of God given to them as something to then go and give to other nations. They saw it as making themselves better than the other nations and a dividing wall. And here you have the region of Ephesus in a Greco-Roman world full of Gentile, non-Jewish people. And Paul's entire letter of Ephesians is saying there are two people groups that because of who Jesus is and what he has done, they need to come together as one. It's racial reconciliation before they even had a term for it. This is the book of Ephesians. Paul is writing to them going, I see these two peoples and I want them to come together. You see, we're a regional church. We have three locations, Milwaukee, West Lynn, and Beaverton. And as a regional church, we as a staff, and I hope you with us are dreaming about what we can look like as a church in the future. We would be a diverse congregation, united in mission about who we are and who we could be, but that's hard because we're having to live in the present in light of a future that we know is coming. And Paul is calling them to go, hey, begin to live that out now. Here's what he says in Ephesians chapter four. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God, always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all and in all and living through all things." sounds a little bit like a dream for unity among a people that have become divided. So let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to verse 1. He says, listen, I'm I'm in prison. I'm serving the Lord there. And so I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. See, what this means is you have a calling. Especially if you are a follower of Jesus, you have a calling. You have a purpose, you have a point, you are not an accident. There is no accidental coincidence. There is the divine will of God and he is at work in your life. So he has put you in specific places for specific reasons if you would only live according to the calling that God has called you to. And so don't hear this like worthy of a calling. It's like somebody shaking their finger at you and going, would you step up? Here it is an invitation. To go, oh, there is so much more that the Spirit has for you if you would only pay attention and live for that. You see, as a follower of Jesus, Scripture teaches and and we believe that at the moment I accept Jesus into my life and trust him to do more for me than I could ever do on my own, that the Holy Spirit comes to live and to dwell in me, which means everywhere I go, God is going with me. That's the worthiness of the calling that I am called to, which means that you are not just a real estate agent. Every home you walk into and show becomes holy ground when you show up. It means that you're not just a stay-at-home parent who's trying to deal with your children and just trying to like, like keep the chaos down and, and get some behavior changes. No, it means you are a child of God and that the love that God has given you that you can't deserve, that you get to pour that out to your children and demonstrate them how to raise them up in the way they should go, trusting their life to Jesus because only the Holy Spirit can convict and transform and change. All you can do is guide them in the right direction. It means that you're not just a salesperson making that phone call after phone call after phone call. It means that you get to look for the divine, holy moments where you break off script and you go, hey, listen, I think there's something else here that we have. It means that the money that you bring in, you begin to go, how do I live a generous life for that? It means that you're not just a plumber going in to fix leaky pipes and to unclog things, that when you walk in to a place as a follower of Jesus, he comes with you. which is why we need everybody. You see, he's a pastor all the time, I know this, I was on a plane just this last week and sure enough, I'm sitting down and, and as people begin to talk, the moment, like we're having great conversation and the moment they go, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a spiritual life coach. <laughs> no, I don't say that. I wanna say that because people are like, what is that? But the moment, the moment I look at them and I go, I'm a pastor, they're like, oh, why'd I have to sit by this guy? Right, And then I always want to be like, hey, you have a faith story and you apparently have a bad rip. Something happened in your past with a pastor. I don't want to be that kind of pastor. So can you tell me about that? What that means is there's people that I can never go and talk to because they wouldn't want to talk to me. But you know what? Your story and what you have, you have a, a gateway into people's lives that I would never have which is why we're all to live worthy of the calling that we have been called by Jesus. But that means we have to be unified together in doing that. We need each other. So so how do we then begin to live that way? Well, he says always be humble and gentle. And we talk a lot about humility here at Willamette, right? One of our, our values is uncommon humility. So we, we love to talk about humility Humility is not thinking less or more of yourself. Humility is not thinking of yourself. Humility is, is saying, hey, I'm going to choose to not be selfish. I'm going to choose to not try to impress other people. I'm going to be humble by thinking of others as better than myself. You see, humility is an attitude that's followed by an action. And this is revolutionary. Revolutionary. In the Ephesian world, the Greco-Roman world that Paul is writing to, as he's writing to them, you see, for the Greco-Romans, the Gentiles that he is writing to, humility would have been seen as a negative thing. It was not a positive thing for them. An excessive desire to serve other people, why would I do that? They looked down upon people with humility. Humility. Paul is introducing to them going, hey, listen, there is actually this Jewish concept that was taught throughout history that God has for people where we would be people that live with humble hearts. It's revolutionary for them. You might even say it's uncommon humility for them. To treat people with humility, though, I have to have a sense of my own self-worth. I have to have a sense of, of, of who I am and who I am not. Because it's not a weakness of character, but it's a proper evaluation, uh, evaluation of my posture before other people. My dependence on God and what he has for me, the calling that I have, when that's given to me, I realize it's not mine, and now I can go serve other people. Because now I begin to see them with the eyes that God sees them with, and so I can treat them with humility. But if I have a warped sense of who I am, either that I am better than other people or worse than other people, both of those things allow pride to creep in and become barriers to humility. If I think that I'm worse than other people, then I serve them out of self-loathing. Like, of course I would do that. I mean, they're so up there and I'm out there and, and I, so this is what I'm supposed to do. Well, that makes it about you and it's Pride. But if I look and I go, well, you know, I'm really, really better than these people. And so I'll go serve them and then. But, but it's because like, I'm just so great that I'm going to go do that. Now that becomes out of a warped sense of entitlement and it becomes pride. So humility is saying, no, 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 it's not. It's knowing who I am in God. That God loves me just as I am. That as a child adopted into the family of God, there is nothing that I can do to make God love me more. And there is nothing that I am going to do that will make him love me less. That gives me a true value and sense. And if God views me that way, and I know my faults and my shortcomings, then now I can go out and serve other people with humility because it right sizes who I am. You see, humility is the attitude, but there's an action that should follow that, which is gentleness. That when I truly see who I am in God and then humble myself before others, now I can respond in kindness, in tenderness towards them, courteous of other people, considerate of other people, thinking of their needs before my own, willing to waive my unalienable rights for the sake of other people and the common good of others. But man, that is hard because my entire life I've been told that I have those rights and that I am supposed to get what is mine and for me. And yes, a part of that is true. Like we we shouldn't just, just let people run over us and there is value and worth to your life, but it's incomplete because humility is the attitude and gentleness is the action. So I begin to have to say, well, then how do I respond in this way with gentleness towards them? How do I respond to that in a way that's not out of a knee-jerk reaction because I deserve to be heard, but in a way that is considerate of them and considers their perspective in their life and where they're coming from because I want to do it for the sake of relationship with others. Well, if humility is the attitude and gentleness is the action. How do I do that? Be patient with each other. Making allowance for each other's faults. It means I need to be long-suffering, not short-tempered, making room for maybe even putting up with and learning to live with the tension of other people's faults. Why? Because of your love, which means I have to genuinely love people. I have to actually see people as God sees them, a human being made in the image of God, worthy of the death and the resurrection and the grace and the mercy and the care of Jesus because God has loved me, I love others. So when I see them in love, I'm willing to slow down and make room for their faults. If humility and gentleness are hard, that's even harder. (laughs) I mean, I I get it. I I get the humility piece. You you probably don't know this about me. Uh, My entire life, my entire life, people have told me how prideful I am. So I am painfully aware of my own ego. I'm painfully aware of the moments that, that pride begins to creep in because my entire life, I've been on the lookout for it, trying to tamp that monster down. I'm so painfully aware of it that at times people look at me and they're like, hey, you're a little too aware of it. Like, like it's, it's okay. Like, like I'm, I probably def- like go too far in that. I'm really aware of gentleness because something about me is, is I'm, I probably shouldn't admit this as your pastor. I'm not a naturally gentle person. Guys, when I was first called into ministry, people would look at me and go, Hey, Oh, you're called into ministry. So you're going to go be a pastor. And I was like, no, no, I do not want to be a pastor. And they were like, why don't you want to be a pastor? And I was like, because people are going to complain about how loud the music is and the chairs don't look good and the fault on the screens, and I don't care. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, you probably shouldn't go be a pastor. <laughs> like, I, like when, you, when people start complaining about that stuff, I'm just like, this is stupid. And I want to, like, now listen, it's not stupid. This is my own depravity, okay? Like, this, but it just, it just points to like like, gentleness for me, I want to call a spade a spade personality-wise, I just want to come out and go, hey, listen, you're doing this, stop it, this is what it is, let's go, and then you're like, that hurts me, and I'm like, well, it was said in love. <laughs> Never mind the fact that stones thrown in love still hurt. Right? Gentleness just doesn't come easy for me, which is why everything that I tend to say publicly, I filter through my wife. She is gentle by nature. She is kind by nature. And so if I say something that's offensive, it's her fault for not catching it, okay? Um, but, but like, like, like Jenna, Jenna helps me, she helps me soften things. So any, any humility and any gentleness that I have in my life is not because of me, it's because of the Holy Spirit's work in me and the community of God that he's put around me. I get those two. Patience with each other's faults, that is maddening for me it wears me out because I want to look at people and I'm like, why are you still doing that? You know, we've talked about this multiple times. Haven't you learned by now? You know, based on their age and the experience that they have, they should probably have matured beyond that by now. Why are they not doing it? You know, if they really cared, they would do it differently. Can't they see that every time they do that, it hurts other people? And here's the deal. I may be right in my assessment, but I am terribly wrong in my attitude. I have to keep doing this. Making room for each other's faults. Because when I don't, I lose patience with people. I lose patience with them. I lose the ability to give grace to other people, which then leads me to not being gentle, but just coming out and being harsh with others and just saying it like it is because I'm so frustrated with it, which then begins to put me in this spot of going, well, I'm right and they're wrong. So now I'm out of humility as well. Now that's how I see this connecting for me and my personality in my life. Maybe you can relate. <laughs> or maybe it works in a different way for you. But the call is the same on all of us. That we would be people that because of our love for each other, we fight for this. Which is why in verse six, he says, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. I love that it says make every effort here because that means it's an ongoing process. So those moments when I'm not patient with people's faults and I'm not humble and I am prideful and I'm not gentle, that's not a failure, that's life. And it's a moment for me to do the heart work to go, I need to make every effort again. I'm gonna fail in this. It's it's, it's okay to fail, but man, I, I should not grow weary in doing good for this. It means then that I need the spirit that is uniting me to other people to convict me and point those things out in me so that I can continue to be in relationship with one another. So that's why this is an invitation, not condemnation. To go, hey, this is what we're inviting you to. It's hard. It is a difficult thing to come and and to say, I'm going to be a part of God's people, the kingdom, the church, but I'm going to keep fighting for it. Why? Because there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one father of all who is over all and in all and living through all. That's the thing in this beautiful family of God that unites us. Which means regardless of race or culture or background or previous decisions that you have made that have brought you to where you are, as a follower of Jesus, we can be one. We are all ready, united together, whether we like it or not, in the future kingdom city that God is building. The question is, am I making every effort to live that out now, to usher in the kingdom? After all, this is the dream that Jesus prayed for for us. It's the dream that, that Paul's writing about and calling the church in Ephesus to. And it's the dream that Martin Luther King gave his life for. So how do I begin to live this out? And I think part of that is, is good, honest self-reflection of just reflection on, on my life and, and kind of looking at gentleness and humility and patience and going, okay, Holy Spirit, where do I need to work on that? And then going and, and telling people about that and giving permission for people to call me out in that. But I also think we've got to begin to shift the way that we think about relationships with one another, especially if you're a follower of Jesus and, and you call this church your church home. And so there's two kind of paradigms of the church that I want to show this morning is this just to begin to sort of shift our thinking a little bit to live this out. Now, the first one I've already introduced to you a little bit, right? It's this idea that the world around us that we're born into says, hey, agreement is the first thing that we have to do. We have to agree on something before we'll move into understanding each other and before we'll really accept one another. What Paul has been arguing and what Jesus demonstrated is we flip the top and the bottom. And we take acceptance and we go, no, no, no. I love you and I care for you and I accept you right where you are. That's what God has done for me. And so I'm going to do it for you. sounds a lot like making allowance for the faults of other people. I love you. I accept you right here. And then when things go sideways and we need to begin to understand each other better, I'm willing to go there, not because we agree on things, but because I already love you. And because I already love you, I'm willing to fight for understanding with you. And you know what? Because I love you, I'm going to do that with humility and gentleness. Because it's not getting you to agree with me. Because we already love each other. That's what leads to agreement, which sounds a whole lot like unity. That then I'd be willing to go, hey, this is who we are. This, you see, this idea, of flipping this paradigm, this is kingdom thinking. But it's hard. It's hard because we have to keep flipping them. I mean, we've got it here side by side in case you missed the color swap that I designed, Uh, right? So so, so the the world kind of that we're born into goes, hey, we have to agree first. And we go, no, no, the gospel says I accept you first. Another way to think about this, and I think this is super helpful, is that if this is the way we do, then what we're fighting for is not unity. What we're fighting for is unanimity. I got that right. I've been practicing that all weekend. (laughs) Unanimity. You see, unanimity says... The definition of that is that we all have to agree together at the same time. If you sit on a board, unanimity says that before a decision is made, the entire board has to agree wholeheartedly with that. Good luck. Unanimity is not a gospel principle. Unity is. Unity says We may disagree on this, and yet we can be united together as well. It makes faults for each other's allowances, or allowances for each other's faults, that we would fight for unity, not unanimity. And so I think this is the first thing, it's just, it's a paradigm shift, that's just helpful in our thinking as we engage with each other. But there's a second paradigm that I want to introduce maybe to you, maybe you've seen it before, that's just kind of a helpful model of the way that the, the, the church works and that it's organized. And now, uh, as a staff, one of the things that we get to do, and I, and I love that we, that our elders say to it and our staff loves to do it, is, is we help coach other churches in our region and beyond. I was in Denver last week for a course, and while I was there, I got to take two different churches out to dinner and just sit down with them and go, how's church going? What are you struggling with? Anything I can do to help you? What does that look like? And I love that, right? Because we love to just coach and help other churches, and we do this because, well, Paul said, there's one God and one church, and you get it, okay? It's not just about us. Like we go, how do we build the church? And so when we do that, sometimes in these coaching environments, we'll walk in and we'll share this diagram with them. And like every good thing, it's a Venn diagram. Uh, And so so here's here's the way we kind of talk about the church is there's three things that make it up. There's corporation, there's mission, and there's family. So let's take these one at a time. One aspect of the unity of the church, being unified together, is we are a corporation. We're an institute of sorts. We have an HR department. We have a budget and bottom lines that we look for. We have unifying language. We are one church in multiple locations. We have bylaws and governance and things that we filed with the United States of America to be a nonprofit 501c3 slash church. Those are corporate things that we have to do. And so there is an absolutely a part of us that is this Paul alludes to this when he's going, hey, remember, regional church, you are one church, one God, one baptism. There's, there's some just some things that we are that we agree to. Now, often when when we introduce this idea, and maybe you see that word corporation up there, you immediately are like, I don't like to think about the church that way. Maybe that's because you're like, yeah, that's what's wrong with the church. Or maybe it's because you're just like, ah, that just feels too businessy to me. If that's you, and I'll speak to you that, that have maybe been in the church a while, if you don't like to think about the church in that way, just know that you already do. I know this because I served at a church where we changed the logo of the church one time. you have no idea how many committee meetings we had to have over that. I know this because I have friends in ministry who they've changed the name of their church. Whoo! People flip out. <laughs> Family didn't change. Mission didn't change. We changed our name. And people go bonkers over that. You see, it's just a part of who we are. And so there's absolutely this. The thing about that though is when we can come around that and we go, hey, the reason this is important is when we have clarity on these things, it actually helps unify us together. When we can agree on some of these things, it's a unifying thing. But then there's the mission aspect of the church. One God, one people. That we as the church are to reconcile the world. That we would be known by our love that God has given us a mission to go into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is what we are to go do. Here at Willamette, we say we want to inspire people to know love and to follow Jesus. This is our mission. We wanna inspire people to know that, that yes, you would cognitively know and begin to understand more and study more of who God is. It's why we do things like labs from time to time to say, hey, just come on. How do we begin to study this together more? But also that there would be this personal knowing in the same way that when I sit with you and I have coffee, I get to actually know who you are which leads me to then love you even more because now I understand more of your story and more of your background. When we think about knowing and loving Jesus, then I go, man, Jesus Christ died the death that I was supposed to die, and he rose from the dead, which gives me the ability to live the life that I couldn't have lived on my own. Oh my gosh, if he would give me that, how much more does he love me than I could ever fathom and understand? So we want to inspire people to know, to love, and then to follow after Jesus, that when I know who he is and I have fallen in love with him, I would give my entire life over to him and say, God, because of the future you are bringing, I will live my life in light of the present now following after you. See, that's a unifying thing of the church, the mission that we are on. And then there's family. That circle right there, this is where unity falls apart. this is where it happens, at least the fastest, because families are messy. We live in an individualistic consumer culture rather than a collectivist sacrificial society. And because we are individual in our thinking, it's hard for us to think collectively together. You know this to be true in culture. Fads come, fashions come, they blow in and out throughout the world and they drive generations apart. The same wind blows through the church from time to time. And we too easily walk away from the family. We too easily change for the latest trend or the personal preference. Instead of going, no, this is my family. You do this already with your blood families. You get together with people and you put up with each other's faults because you're family. Which means as a person that calls this church my church home, there's things that we do that I totally love. And there's things that I'm like, I wouldn't do it that way. And that's okay. Because it allows each of us to live worthy to the calling that we have been given. This is the unity that Paul calls us to. And it begins with a Trinitarian God that is both united and separate. It reminds us that the church is not just a cultural group or a subculture. It's not even just an event on Sunday, but it's rather a family of brothers and sisters joined together in the adoption of Jesus, which is why I'm willing to then live in humility and gentleness and patience. Because I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a corporate side of these things. And as a person on staff, I've got to think about that. Yeah, there's a mission that we're on that we're going to unite around as well. But the patience and the gentleness and the humility comes because I go, man, we are brothers and sisters in Jesus. And so I'm going to live my life that way. This is the theology that Dr. King was calling on in his speech when he said, I have a dream. That one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. No government policy can do that, only the Spirit of God in the church can. So I still have a dream dream that we would be a church that lives with a posture leaning towards that this year. Believing that God has brought us this far and he won't leave us here. He'll continue to move us in a redemptive arc towards that dream. That no matter the shifts, the changes, the outcomes, the opportunities, the situations, the opinions that come, that we would be a church that leans in to be united as one, patient, gentle, and humble with one another making room for each other's faults it's not easy but I absolutely believe it is worth it you know one of the things we do every single week here is we take communion together as a church we do it for all sorts of theological reasons but one of the things is this is just something that reminds us of the unity that we can have with one another It's a moment to just slow down each week and go, wait a minute, I am part of something that is bigger than myself. So, hopefully, on your way in, you got one of these, and there's a piece of bread, this little wafer on the top. This represents Jesus' body that is broken for you. Scripture says that when we come together and do this, we are remembering what He has done. That this is the thing that we unite around as followers. Jesus. So let's take the bread in remembrance of him. And then there's the cup of juice that reminds us of Jesus' blood that was poured out. through his blood that scripture says that the temple where God had dwelled, that upon his resurrection, because he had given his life, the curtain between the parts of the temple where people, there was this barrier between people, was torn in two because God said, now all people have access to me. And he gave us a visual representation of that at the resurrection of Jesus. And as the church, we get to continue on and say, yes, because of the blood of Jesus. I can look at you as family in the kingdom of God. So let us take this together in remembrance of Him. Father, I thank you for the call of being one before. God, I I thank you for the spirit that is in every follower of Jesus. would you just continue to to point out in my life and in our lives how to be humble and gentle, making allowance for each other's faults. It's in the name of Jesus we pray this. Amen.